This is an ABC podcast. Good day. I'd like to extend an official welcoming gesture to all of our oral contributors to this broadcast. You're engaging with the program commonly referred to as Hack. My widely accepted identifying moniker is Dave Marchese, as acknowledged in the official documentation related to my birth. Hey, are you still with me? Because if you're thinking, what are you saying, Dave? You're not crazy. I'm talking in bureaucratic, ridiculous jargon. Stuff we're all sifting through every day, whether you're filing a tax return or trying to figure out your rubbish collection rules. If you hate this kind of language, and I do, you're not alone. And guess what? New Zealand might be about to get a plain language law that would force bureaucrats to speak like normal people. Will it work? Stay tuned. But first... Are you okay, Dave? We're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that because I want you. What do you want? It's not that simple. What do you want? If it's with that guy, go. Go! I lost you once. I think I could do it again. On Hack. Heartbreak. It's something most of us have experienced at one time or another, and people deal with it different ways. Maybe you need to distract yourself, get busy, get fit. Or you like to really sit in it, be a bit miserable, watch a lot of 90 Day Fiancé to make yourself feel better. Who knows? But do men and women experience heartbreak differently? Because some reckon, yeah, they do. And it's because of the way breakups are portrayed around us in the media and pop culture. And whether you're straight or queer, it's something we all need to talk about. I'm interested, are you a guy and have you struggled to get support through a breakup from mates? Has it been something that it's been hard to talk about? You don't think people have taken your emotions seriously? Let me know, one 300 You can message in as well, 0439 In a sec, we'll talk to an expert, but first, Ange McCormack has more. So you're breaking up with me because I'm too... blonde? No, that's not entirely true. Then what? My boobs are too big? This scene from Legally Blonde is the classic, cliched example of how women deal with the breakup. She cries, screams, storms out. She spends the next few days eating a box of chocolates in bed, watching rom-coms, and eventually she reinvents herself. Obviously, this is a stereotype, but pop culture plays a big role in normalising how we live our lives. When it comes to a broken heart, women are told they're allowed to get angry. You guys are terrible for each other and you know I'm right and you guys can all judge me if you want, but I do not care. I have never, ever been happier. Or emotional and write poetry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. I feel as though women have a script. It's an imperfect script, but there are a series of steps that they know to take, which is uh, partly born from, from watching other women around them, but also popular culture. This is Jessie Stevens. She wrote a book on breakups called Heartsick. And when I was reading it recently, I got really interested in this idea that in heterosexual relationships, women have a script for breakups. But as for guys... I don't see a script for men so much. While women have an imperfect one, men do not know what to do next. Jessie thinks there isn't enough conversation around helping men through breakups. Whenever I have read about heartbreak or watch stories of heartbreak, it almost always belongs to women. We kind of think rejection is part of life and part of love. But I think that when men 
face romantic rejection, there's a different level of shock because I haven't seen it represented in in as many ways. It is at odds with masculinity, especially Australian masculinity, to be hurt and to be emotional and to cry and to wallow. Okay, but enough about what women like Jessie and I think. I hit up some guy friends in my group chat for their takes. This is my friend Dave. You know, sitting around with your friends eating ice cream or crying to a rom-com or, you know, changing your hair. Even even though those things can seem superficial or, or performative, I think there's a lot of value in, like, performative rituals. I, I wish men felt more comfortable engaging in, in some of those those rituals. My friend Jeremy said that the bigger issue here is how men typically, not always, but typically process their feelings. We aren't as good as at processing feelings as women. Like uh, women are encouraged to talk about their feelings, to talk about what they're going through. Men kind of less so. Men kind of like pull their socks up, suck it up and, you know, harden up. I wish it was all part of manhood. You can't see it in popular culture. We, I can't see it in the kind of, I don't know, the heroes or whatever that, that I'm looking at. It's, it's important. Like, you know, the, the, yeah, the suicide rates for men are like insane, are huge. And my friend Joel said in a breakup, having community is important. And a lot of guys struggle with that. A lot of men find themselves in relationships where, you know, potentially a lot of their social world uh, are built around their relationship. And so when that falls apart, they find themselves uh, not only without an immediate companion, but also without a whole sort of social universe, a whole feeling of belonging. After talking to Jesse and my guys in the group chat, I was pretty sure this idea was solid. I was thinking like everyone agrees when it comes to straight relationship breakups, men have no idea how to be open about it. Then I spoke to Jerry Carranzas from Deakin Uni. He's an expert in relationships. He wasn't so convinced. When you look at the science on the ground and you look for those differences, those differences are overstated. That is that men and women experience negative emotions around breakup largely to a similar degree. Basically, Jerry says, sure, those stereotypes about men and women might be true for some people, but the real indicator of how men and women cope in a breakup is a lot more complicated than our gender, and it has more to do with our attachment style, so whether we're more anxious, avoidant or secure in a relationship. So what I think is that these stereotypes come about to help us make sense of the world, but stereotypes are filled with a degree of inaccuracy. Jerry also says context is a really big factor in how the breakup will go. It has more to do with the nature of the breakup, how it went down, what was it about, and kind of individual characteristics that people have that probably play out in the way that we experience breakup, cope with it, and any grief and loss symptoms that we experience. I put this idea to Jessie Stevens, the author from before. She said while attachment theory can be useful to think about here, we just can't ignore the way society treats men and women differently. I don't think it is because men and women are that different. I really don't. I think that they're socialised and it's about expectation and, and ideology. And until, you know, a, a man can cry on television as easily as a woman can, I think that we're going to see differences in emotional processing. Hack Triple J. 
Ange McCormack with that story and we're hearing from you. Jack in Melbourne says, I've always been really lucky with supportive and emotionally mature men in my life to support each other through breakups. Makes it so much easier to just be vulnerable. Another person says, men deal with heartbreaks by going to the gym, pushing our bodies to let all the emotion, pain and anger out. And another person says, men absolutely do have a prescription for a breakup and often it involves getting back out there and sleeping with a bunch of women even when they don't want to. I want to ask a bit more about some of those scenarios, strategies, and dive into this more with an expert. Dr. Zach Zeidler is a clinical psychologist. He deals a lot with men's mental health, and he's with us right now. G'day, Zach. Welcome back to Hack. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. So we just heard some mixed opinions there, the idea that men and women deal with breakups differently. Not all experts agree. I'm wondering, what do you think? I think on the ground what I see and what we see in the research is pretty clear, which is that the way that men are socialised, the way that men grow up and learn to understand what relationships look like, how they feel, and then how to navigate a breakdown um, of that relationship really fundamentally looks different to the way that women respond. And so across the board, what we're seeing is that men often lack the tools, they lack the language to be able to walk through that process. Um, And often that's because they are isolated and they are not able to find that way forward, those people in their lives that they can lean on in those times of need. Yeah, and as we heard, the story talked about women having this social script for breakups, like a lot of depictions of how some women, not all women, deal with heartbreak. Why don't we see much in pop culture reflecting how men cope? Like, is this a particularly Aussie thing? Oh, I think it's it's kind of across the board. You just need to look at Hollywood. You're unlikely to see a depiction. You know, you've got the women lying on the couch eating ice cream, crying themselves to, to sleep while watching a rom-com. That doesn't tend to match the experience that I witness in men, which is probably because it's not romanticised. It comes with a lot of anger, a lot of shame, a lot of misunderstanding um, and fear around their role moving forward uh, because that protector-provider tradition is very strong in many men in Australia. And so when they lose that emotional connection, which is often where they get most of their um, you know, sense of, of self-worth and self-efficacy, when they lose that when they've lost the relationship, they often don't have anyone to turn to. And so as a result, when you look to the media, you're not necessarily going to find these depictions because it's it's messy amongst men. It looks really different in my view. And the way that it manifests isn't something that people really want to talk about, which is that uh, it, it can get, you know, pretty, pretty hairy. We've got some messages coming through. So many messages on the text line right now. Someone says, for men, there's often the breakup beard, growing one of those. That's a way some people are dealing with heartbreak. Oliver in Brizzy says, I think there is a difference with how men and women deal with breakups. He says, maybe women experience more intense emotions for a shorter period, while guys might experience different emotions over a longer period of time. Zach, is there something to that or is that way too generalised? (laughs) I think we're always going to work in generalizations here, which is difficult, but across the board, you're going to see a difference in the way that men and women cope with these types of situations, which is that men often turn to maladaptive coping, which is drinking, drug taking, gambling, the like. And so as a result, what happens down the line is that it's a really uh, difficult time where they are kind of isolating themselves. They are doing these things which uh, people find really difficult to talk about. And then 
they actually don't have the support network in place or the language, as I said before, to reach out to the people in their network and say, the shit has actually hit the fan, I need a hand here. And without that, you know, that's when we end up with these guys leading to uh, really crisis points and, and, you know, reaching out to someone like myself. You're listening to Harkham Dave Marchese speaking to psychologist Zach Seidler about the way guys deal with heartbreak. It's an important conversation, especially today. It's Are You OK Day. Zach, a lot of guys messaging in now are saying, sure, they're talking to their mates about their breakup, but the advice is often a bit lighter, like it's shag it out or like Lockie Mm. in Newcastle saying now, I've found from my experience, it's just your mate saying, if you want to get over someone, you've got to get under someone, Mm. even if you don't want to. And Lockie says, there's no real support around you. And for me, I found myself just diving into work and not doing anything to get over it, just to take my mind off it. Zach, I imagine sometimes it is helpful to be lighthearted about these things, have a laugh, but sometimes that approach isn't the best. Oh, you've got to go beyond the banter. And I think there's a time and place for it. But when someone is really struggling and they bring this stuff up repeatedly with you as a friend group, I think finding that ability to actually connect on an empathetic level and go, hey, mate, what can we actually do here? Do you need more time with us? Do you need to find a way, you know, to get back that that confidence that you may have lost? And really talking through the ramifications of the breakup as well, rather than doing the blame game, which no one benefits from, how can we understand how to actually find some, some post-traumatic growth as, you know, has been a buzzword throughout COVID? How can we grow from this opportunity, learn that it probably you know, wasn't, wasn't the best relationship for you if it, if it ended? And how can we find, you know, that inner voice for yourself that goes, I can get back on the bandwagon. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, going and having a shag fest. It, it, it means understanding what are the things that you're looking for and how can you go about either finding them in yourself or, um, you know, getting back uh, to the dating game. Talking about consequences and how serious this can become, is there a link between breakups, heartbreak and suicide? Sadly, amongst men, relationship breakdown is a significant predictor of, of male suicide. And we know that we're losing seven men a day on average uh, to suicide. And, and you know, if we look at the six months post-separation, they're actually the most risky. So getting in early, having these conversations early, and we don't need to bring up crisis or risk when it's not there, but as we always say, talking about this stuff is not going to bring it out. Instead, having this conversation about suicide, having this conversation about where they're at, where they're moving, how they're feeling, because especially when it comes to a relationship breakup, there's so much shame and so much of this self-stigma around the fact that they should just be able to get over it. But this person was everything to them, for instance. Instead, we need to go it's totally understandable that you're feeling this. Let's find a way to get you the help that you need. And recognise that breakups are a type of grief, right? I mean, any other type of grief, people are more understanding perhaps or just have a bit more knowledge of how to tackle these things. But when it comes to heartbreak or breakups, it seems we're still pretty far behind. Oh, and it can be so painful. I'm sure that anyone listening can know that that feeling of heartbreak can be one of the most fundamental you know, moments in someone's life. It can it can rival losing a, a grandparent, for instance, because you've built this life, you've built this connection with someone, you've shared your deepest, darkest secrets and your happiest moments with them. Love it means so much to so many people and when it is stripped away from us as humans, we feel as though we will never reattain it. 
Oh, this is hitting with so many people. The messages are pouring in. B-Dog in Melbourne says his breakup took a serious toll on his mental health and he does reckon the stigma around men showing emotions made it hard for him to express how he felt with his mates. He says, it took two years for me to get back to a good mental state, happy with my life now, but if there was more support at the time, I feel like two years could have been two months. And another guy, a 25-year-old, says, going through heartbreak right now. He says, I've cried a lot trying counselling. I do training at the gym. The only time my mind isn't focused on what's going on. Struggling a lot, but hoping the pain's going to go away. Zach, what should people do if they're struggling? There is a lot to be said for the fact that time does heal this um, amended you know, broken, broken heart. But we need to to understand and respect the process here, which is that if you've created something uh, whereby you've had a number of years, we always talk about at the gym, if you don't go to the gym for a week, you know, how quickly you can lose those gains. I think that we really need to understand the process here and that reaching out for support, starting off with the people that you love, who are around you, who understand you, who are going to be able to hopefully offer some advice. But if you're not getting that from them, don't lose hope. Rather, reaching out, you know, there are plenty of services out there. The amount of men who I know who go on Reddit and get a lot of, you know, normalizing support from other guys out there who are really struggling and then moving forward, obviously, trying to to go and speak to your GP and and getting a counselor or a psych to have that chat with them and realizing that this is a a pretty big life transition and it's worthy of your time and your effort to understand and to, to incorporate it moving forward. Important stuff. We're so glad to have you here to break it all down for us. Psychologist Dr. Zach Seidler, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Anytime, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And Zach's involved in Movember. It's happening again this year. Maybe you always get around it. They're actually building a program now that's going to give guys the tools to navigate this sort of stuff. We're hearing from you. Someone says, definitely resonate with this story. Having gone to an all-boys sporting school and worked in a few hands-on industries, men aren't supposed to feel hurt. I'm going through a lot and feel invisible to my mates. Well, if you're the same, if you need some help, if you're struggling, if this has brought up any issues, you can always get Lifeline on 13 11 14. And for something a bit more specific, Men's Line Australia is on 1300 78978. Hack. Arguments about climate science. After however long of the bull that Australians have had Senator to. Senator Pocock, that language is not parliamentary. I ask that you withdraw. On Triple J. <laughs> yeah, Senator David Pocock in Parliament earlier today speaking some pretty plain language. We all understood him though, hey? Would you like to hear more of that kind of language? Not the swearing part, the plain speak, not just by politicians, but by bureaucrats too. In my job, we get this all the time. The cops will tell us something like, the male youth alighted from the train and following a short foot pursuit, which was commenced by police, it resulted in the male youth being taken into custody. And that basically means the teenager jumped off the train and was chased by the cops until he was arrested. It's so frustrating. Well, if you hate this kind of speak, New Zealand's parliament is debating a bill, the Plain Language Bill, which is aimed at making information easier to understand. Let's find out a bit more about this. It sounds so interesting. With us from NZ is Sam Campbell. He's a law lecturer at the University of Waikato. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much for having me. Look, there are so many examples. We could get into a heap of them, but we probably don't have time. But I want to ask about the plain language bill in New Zealand. What's it aiming to do? Well, the basic idea behind the bill is that clear communication from government is a basic democratic right. 
So that's the underlying theme. Uh, and the bill uh, tries to make government agencies communicate in a much clearer way. Uh, and there'll be some guidance material and stuff like that coming out uh, later on if the bill manages to pass into law. I mean, it just makes sense, right? If, you know, you need everyone in these uh, big positions to be understanding what you're saying. So what is plain language? Like, I'm wondering, is there a definition of what plain language is? Yeah, uh, there's actually heaps of them and they're all kind of competing. But I I think most of them distill down to a few key things. Uh, Obviously, the information needs to be clear the intended audience needs to be able to find and understand the information. And they also need to understand what they need to do after they've read it. So they're the basic things that that need to be uh, uh, communicated when we're writing in plain language. So what- I've actually got an example. This was... Uh, this was one of the sentences uh, which really kicked off the plain language movement that we've seen in this bill. It was from the New Zealand Transport Agency. Um, what they were trying to say was, we're going to improve our customer service. And they took a whole paragraph uh, to explain what they meant by that. Um, I'll only read the first sentence uh, because the entire thing's cringeworthy. <laughs> Uh, But they said, Transform the Transport Agency establishes a deliberate change management approach to successfully transition the Transport Agency to the refreshed strategy and the new ways of working. I mean, I don't understand what that means. I no idea. I don't think many people would. (laughs) Did did they explain what it meant? (laughs) Uh, No, there's actually a few defined terms in there that I think you actually have to go away and research to understand what they're going on about. Oh, so interesting. It's that type of language that this bill aims to address. So, Sam, who's going to benefit most from this? I mean, all of us, obviously. Everyone wants to be able to understand what's going on. But I imagine there are particular groups in society that will find this incredibly useful? Yes, uh, as you say, it's important for everyone to be able to understand what the government is trying to communicate. Uh, But it's particularly important for people who are learning English, uh, for those who struggle with reading and writing. um, And it's also, uh, if the bill passes into law, a a big win for people with disabilities, uh, because the bill explicitly states that um, the accessibility of documents to people with disabilities needs to be improved. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to Sam Campbell, a law lecturer from New Zealand, about this plain language bill that they're debating in New Zealand Parliament. I'm wondering, Sam, do you reckon there's an argument for other institutions like courts, for example, to adopt more plain language? Because I've covered a lot of courts in my time as a journalist, and the thing that I always notice is sometimes the magistrate speaking, giving some very important information to somebody there, you know, listening to them intently about their life, what's going to happen to them, and they've got no idea what's going on. Uh, Yeah, you're onto something really important there, Dave. Um, It's a big concern, both in Australia and New Zealand, and it's a critical access to justice issue. Uh, Justice is for all of us. It's not just for companies who can afford hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And so the clearer clearer that communications can be from the judiciary, uh, but also from places like the Ministry of Justice, explaining how you go to court, what you can expect on the day and some key legal principles. That's really important too. 
There's a bit of a balance because some concepts are complex and they need complex terms to accurately communicate what they mean. Uh, but uh, I don't think we've quite got that balance right yet. Uh, I think there's definitely some work to do, particularly in the legal field, to make things easier to understand. Oh, it's really interesting. And who knows, maybe we might see something like this introduced in Australia. Definitely a lot of appetite for it. I'm hearing from so many people now on the text line who are talking about their nightmare experiences with horrible jargon, bureaucratic language. Sam Campbell from the University of Waikato, thanks very much for filling us in. Thanks very much. And some of those messages, somebody says, people with learning disability, mental disability are divided by not being able to understand or fully understand plain language on its own, let alone something that sounds like gibberish. John from Wyong says, great idea. Policies that affect everyday people should be understood by everyone from all walks of life. Hack, we're going to take our time to work through each sector because we'll need different tools and approaches for different sectors. On Triple J. Oh, it's bloody happened. You know all that talk about emissions reduction targets, negotiations? For years we've been hearing about this, right? Well, earlier today, the government's legislation to make a 43% emissions reduction target law cleared its last political hurdle. This was one of Labor's big election promises and it's managed to get it passed without many changes, even though quite a few people did want to tweak it. So how have we finished up? Let's get the rundown from Hacks political reporter Georgia Hitch. Hey, George, big day in Parliament. Does this mean this is done and dusted now? It was a huge day in Parliament, and yes, it kind of does mean we're done and dusted. So the climate change bill, which the government introduced on its first day, um, you know, as the government in the last sitting period, it passed the Senate this afternoon, and it had a few amendments that were made to it. So changes to the bill that was originally introduced to the House on that first day. And so the way that things work in Parliament, the kind of procedural thing is if something goes to the Senate and it gets changed, it doesn't just get passed. It has to go back to the House so that the people there can also vote on it. And sometimes you end up with more amendments in the House, then it goes back to the Senate and back to the House and things can tick on quite a bit. So it passing the Senate was kind of as you said, the last political hurdle, because if it passes the Senate, because the government has a majority in the lower house, which is what we call the House of Representatives, it means that it just kind of it gets a tick of approval there. And just before four o'clock today, it's just really a formality. It went back to the House, they signed it off. And to be totally honest, it felt a little like anticlimactic. <laughs> like it was like, okay, and oh, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay, well, the House is done for today. And yeah, that's it. We've got a 43% re emissions reduction target. There yeah, we go. It's so weird. Like having spoken about it for so long on this show, doing lots of interviews with politicians, debates about what the target should be. And now that's just it. And those last two steps, as you mentioned, the vote in the Senate and the House happened really quickly this afternoon. You mentioned that there were some changes made to the bill, though. Run us through those. Yeah, so the amendments that were made, all these changes were um, majority, the ones that were agreed to were from the independent senator in the ACT, David Pocock. That's who the government needed to secure this bill to go through. So they were really kind of keen to work with him and they agreed to a few amendments that he made. It's also worth mentioning, he said he'd back the bill either way, but they did make a few changes to it and he's amendments, David Pocock's amendments, were really focused at improving transparency and making sure the government is held accountable in this emissions reduction target bill. So four of his changes were agreed to, and that included things like expanding what's considered 
to, you know, in terms of climate change risks to include things like Australia's biodiversity, our health, like people's health, economy and national security. So how could or will these things really be impacted by climate change, you know, if it's going to mess up our lives and what impact could that have? And also then I guess how do we make sure that those um, impacts are lessened in every way possible? Uh, The other... um, thing that was changed as part of his amendments was how uh, the Climate Change Authority, which is, you know, kind of the agency that will oversee this bill, if it gives any advice to the Climate Change Minister, which at the moment is Chris Bowen, about whether maybe that target needs to be updated. If it comes around, you know, they have to do an annual report, whether maybe we should be looking at tweaking that, making it more ambitious, that has to be made public. So it means that the the public and the Australian people can see how that's going and see what advice the minister is getting. So that's kind of the transparency angle. Um, And, you know, it just means that I guess if we do have a more ambitious target, which is what a lot of people were pushing for, the Greens and other people and other parties as well, you know, they have made it very clear they want, they think it should be more than 43% by 2030, then we will all get to see if that advice is coming through and then hold the government to account as part of that. Right, and David Pocock, we heard, got a little bit mouthy talking about it earlier he today. He did. <laughs> got a bit told off. He's a little bit of it. It's, it seems like a pretty sad day in Australia when in 2022 we're hearing arguments about climate science. After however long of the bullshit that Australians uh, order, have had Senator to... Pocock, order, 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 I love order. it. That plain speaking thing is so true. And I think, you know, I think he, he's... What he was talking about there, even though some of those changes he put forward were agreed to, um, you know, there is definitely a broader conversation that will keep happening about the need to do more and all those crossbenches in both the House and the Senate pushing the government to do it. And just very quickly, Georgia, we've only got 30 seconds left, but this is obviously a big win for moving towards net zero. But on the politics side, how big of a deal is it for the government. Yeah, definitely a big deal. We heard a lot about the climate wars and the government really signalled that this is the end to those because there hasn't been a government that's been able to put into law that we actually have a target to reduce our emissions. And the reason that's really important is it signals to other countries that we're committed and it signals to business that like, hey, we're doing this. If you want to bring your renewable you know, energy or whatever it might be to help us get there, we're serious. So it's a big political win for them as well. Oh, thanks for filling us in. Hack political reporter Georgia Hitch, thank you for your time. Thanks. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to political reporter Georgia Hitch and all the people who messaged in on our big stories today, including heartbreak for men, men breaking up and how they're dealing with it. So many messages still pouring through with experiences. This has really struck a nerve and we we get it. And it's Are You OK Day today, so it's a really important time to be speaking about these big issues. That is all we have time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.